Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. Hello, welcome to Cornerstone Fellowship. Happy almost New Year. It's uh, really good to be here with everyone, whether you're here in person or watching online or at one of our campuses or venues. Uh, Glad you made it, glad you could join us. Uh, My name is Clint Rutledge. I'm one of the pastors at our Livermore campus. And today we're gonna be concluding our Go Tell It series, talking about the events that happened after the birth of Jesus. So after the first Christmas, what happens next? Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2, and that's where we'll be today. As you're opening to Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to go ahead and pray and just uh, once again invite God to be here with us. Jesus, uh, we're so grateful that we're in your presence. We don't have to invite you because the truth is you've always been here. Uh, You were here before we showed up, that's for sure. Uh, But now we're here. And so we just invite you into our hearts and into our minds and ask that you would do something miraculous. God, this story that was written thousands of years ago is still absolutely applicable in our lives today. And that's the power of your scripture. And so I pray that it would would truly reach us, the depths of our being, the depths of our hearts, and it would transform us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, before we get into our story, I have a couple questions I want to ask to get our minds thinking in the direction that the story is going to take us. The first question is directed kind of towards the parents in the room. Now, if you don't have kids or young kids and you have nieces and nephews, you've probably seen this as well. But this is something that I deal with every year as a parent to three young boys. And here it is. Have you ever noticed that the toys on the commercials are like way more awesome and exciting and fun than in reality. Like, have you ever had a kid or seen a kid open up a toy on Christmas morning that he had to have because he saw the commercials and he opens it on Christmas morning, rips the box open and he plays with it for like two minutes and then never touches it for the rest of the year? 
Like me and my wife try our best to get our boys toys they want and toys they'll like for Christmas. But every year, we all, there's always one or two toys that they play with once and then never play with again. We have a pile of them in the garage. They collect uh, spider webs and dust. And uh, this, uh, two years ago, actually, it reminds me, uh, we bought a Hot Wheels track. You know, the Hot Wheels tracks, like the ones that have the loop-de-loops, you know, and, and we were watching the commercial a couple years ago, and it was the one that my boys wanted. They had to have. Every time the commercial came on, they got excited. Their face lit up, and the, the kids in the commercial are even more excited, and they're like high-fiving each other and hugging each other, you know, and laughing, and they're doing the little Hot Wheels tracks, and there's like sparks flying as they're doing their loop-to-loops and crashing cars, and there's like waterfalls and lights in the background, and you're like, dude, this is awesome. Not only is it fun, it's going to like promote camaraderie and teamwork and sharing amongst our kids. Kids. And then Christmas morning comes and they open it and they're like, I want the blue car, I want the red car. That Hot Wheels track took me longer to put together than it did for my kids to stop playing with it. And every year when one of these toys fails, I'm reminded of the simple truth that sometimes what our kids think will make them happy actually leaves them disappointed. Now, before we write this off as a kid problem, this is an adult problem, right? This is a human problem. Uh, my wife reminded me of this uh, just this last week when she reminded me what happened last year in my life. Uh, I'm 35 now, so a year ago I was 34, and I don't know if this is common for people in their mid-30s, but I went through this like weird midlife crisis thing where I had to get a manly car. I don't know where that came from. I, I'm not a car guy. I've never wanted, I never cared about the cars I drove, just getting from point A to point B. But about a year ago, I had to get a really manly car. And so I, I was, I was kind of like telling my wife about it. And she's like, go, babe, you got this, you know? And I didn't want a truck because I don't want to help people move. So I, <laughs> so I, I settled on a, a, a silver Jeep Grand Cherokee. I saw it on Craigslist. I, as soon as I saw it, I had to have it. Tinted windows, nice tires, four-wheel drive, which is dumb because I don't go to the snow or off-road, but it seemed manly, so I was like, I gotta have that. And so I show up at the dealership, and I see the car in person. It's even better than I saw online. I'm like, okay, I gotta have it. Pull out the, pull out the cash, you know. I'm giving it to the guy. We're doing the paperwork. And he says, oh, just so you know, that car, um, there's no warranties on that one. That one's just as is. Like, we don't sell warranties here for a lot of our cars. And, and that should have been my sign to run <laughs> or at least like come back with a mechanic. But I ignored it because I had to have it. I took that car home. I kid you not, a week later, the check engine light came on. I had to get a new shifter. I didn't even know those things went out, okay? Two weeks after that, I smelled a funky smell, took it to the mechanic, and he said, your heater core is cracked and there's antifreeze dripping into your interior of your car and your floorboards which is kind of poisonous. So he's like, you need to take care of that. I had that car for eight weeks before I had to get rid of it because it was just a money pit. What I learned was I'm just like my children. Sometimes what I think I need, what I think is gonna satisfy me, just leaves me disappointed. The human heart has been searching for the wrong things ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All too often, we set our hearts or our minds on the wrong things, thinking that they're going to satisfy, only to painfully realize they don't. So the question that I want to start with this morning 
and to start thinking about this morning is what are you searching for right now? As you look into the new year, what is it that you think you need or you think you need to accomplish or attain or purchase or buy or, or date or marry or whatever it is, that thing in your life that you think is missing, that if you could just get that in 2019, everything would be better. Everything would be happier or you'd be more satisfied or more at peace or more calm. What is it in your life that you're just searching after in 2019? It's with that question, with those thoughts that I wanna pick up our story. Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, let's stop and unpack those two verses because there's so much in there already. First, we'll talk about the Magi, these Magi from the East. If you've seen any traditional nativity sets, you're familiar with these guys. They're the ones with the expensive robes, with the gifts in their hands, with the long flowing beards, right? They, they probably traveled on camel or, or by foot um, and they come to Jerusalem. But what else do we know about these Magi? Well, I did some research this past week and I found out a few things that'll help us as we move forward. Uh, the Magi can be translated in several different ways. Uh, some, some versions refer to them as kings, which you may have heard, or wise men. Uh, early church fathers actually translated the word simply as magicians. But don't think of like modern day magic or magicians. Think more like scientists or astrologers. Probably uh, from what's known as this, this philosophy or this religion back in the day called Zoroastrian, Zoroastrian uh, astrologers, which originated in ancient Persia in the seventh century BC. It actually still continues to this day. But as part of this philosophy, these guys studied the skies and they studied the stars, which is how the Magi are drawn into our story because there's this, this awesome star that they're following. Now, most scholars agree that, that these guys came from ancient Persia, which is a journey that would have been about 400 to 1,000 miles away to get to Jerusalem. It'd be like traveling from the Bay Area to Mexico and on a camel or on foot. In other words, it was a very, very long journey. It was also probably a very dangerous journey. So you can imagine the Magi with their treasures going along those ancient Roman roads. Um, and I'm not just really talking about the environmental dangers, which was very common to travelers back then, or even the bandits that would have been along ancient Roman roads or, or, or possible like government interference. Like these are foreigners coming into the strict Roman uh, empire, the Roman government, and they're the enemy. And so if they would have been stopped by Roman officials, they could have been in trouble. They could have been harassed. And all those dangers aside, the biggest threat they probably encountered was that when they arrived in Jerusalem and showed up to the palace and walked up to the king and said, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Guys, that's a dangerous question. You don't just walk up to the king on his throne and ask, where's the king? Especially with this guy, Herod, because he was the king of the Jews. That was the, the title that Rome gave him. He was appointed king of the Jews. And they marched right into his palace and asked him, where's the king of the Jews? This is dangerous. Like I said, especially with this king, this, this tyrannical king, Herod. History tells us that he was known for his ruthlessness. Uh, he murdered one of his wives, Miriam, along with her brother, her grandfather, her mother, even her two sons, which meant he murdered his own two sons just 
to preserve his throne, just to preserve his own power. I mean, this guy was, was nuts. That's the king that the Magi come to in Jerusalem and step forward to and ask, hey, where's the king? See, that was dangerous. That was a dangerous question. But these Magi don't care because they're, they're on a quest for something greater. They have their sights set on something more important. Let's keep reading, verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Well, they said, over in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found them out and found out that from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. All right, let's stop here again. We're introduced to some new characters in the story. You might have missed it, but these are important characters. In verse four, it talks about the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Okay, these are the religious experts of the day. These are the, the Bible nerds. These are the ones that know all the questions and all the answers to all the, the Bible questions. So when Herod has a question about the ancient scriptures brought to him by the Magi, he goes to these experts and he says, hey, where's this Messiah? Where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they're like, oh, over in Bethlehem in Judea. And they quote the, the prophet Micah. Now what's interesting about these guys is they know the right answer right away but they don't do the right thing. They know all the answers to all the Bible questions, but they don't do anything about it. I mean, you would think that these guys would have at least went with the Magi over to Bethlehem to investigate this Messiah that they were claiming to know. I mean, it's already told us that the whole town was in uproar, so everyone knows something is going down, something big is happening, yet these religious experts sit there and do nothing about it. They don't even go and investigate. Could this be the Messiah that we've been waiting for, that our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers have been waiting for and talking about for years and years and years? They don't even go and look. They do nothing. Their inactivity is staggering in light of what's happening in this story. All they do is answer the question. He's over in Bethlehem, which by the way, is only six miles from Jerusalem. Bethlehem was six miles from the palace in Jerusalem. Like they could have seen Bethlehem out their bedroom window. These magi, they've come already from 500 to 1,000 miles away, yet these religious experts aren't willing to go six. Let's keep reading verse nine. After they, the Magi, had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I love that verse, verse 10. We're gonna talk about that for a second. Probably my favorite verse in this whole story. It says, when they saw the star, the Magi, they were overjoyed. Now, unfortunately, the NIV, which is the translation that we're reading, like totally waters down the, the vibrancy of this word overjoyed. If you're reading any other version, it probably uses four English words to describe this one Greek phrase overjoyed. And, and what you'll see in most other versions is the phrase, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Just check that out for a second. Let that sink in. Like that's so many exciting words. <laughs> they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
Like they're trying to make a point that these magi were so excited when they saw the star standing over the place that the child was to be born. Because everything they just traveled for and searched for, they're now about to see. And their hearts were leaping. I mean, this is the most exciting a person can get. It's like when you get that crazy text message from your friend in all caps with exclamation points, emojis, and there's a gif to follow. You know, like, you're like, okay, I get the point. You're, you're excited. And so the question we have to kind of ask ourselves at this point in the story is, when was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy over something? I think about my wedding day uh, 10 years ago, October 18th, 2008, when uh, a beautiful girl named Diane said she would marry me. She'd be my wife. I was rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. I think of all three dates that my boys were born, making me a father, making me a dad. I was rejoicing. My heart was leaping. I think of uh, August, what is it, August 18th, 2018, when I was at the Oakland Coliseum and Matt Olson hit a walk-off home run in the bottom of the 10th to beat the defending champion Astros and move us within one game. Anybody? Anybody else at that game? Just me? Maybe a couple of guys. Okay, people at home probably, yeah. So I was at that game and I was going crazy. And that stuff's awesome. But the real question that we have to ask ourselves is, when was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy over Jesus? I remember sitting in this place 12 years ago, listening to the pastor give a message about God's unconditional love and grace. I was sitting, uh, I think, in that section back over there in our Livermore Auditorium. And see, this was coming out of a season of my life where I had completely turned my back on God. I was raised in the church. I went to church all through high school, then went to college and uh, kind of turned my back on God for about five years. And I searched for satisfaction and peace and salvation and all the wrong things, and they left me empty and empty and empty. And then my, my cousin picked up the phone, called me, and invited me to Cornerstone, and I came, and I sat in one of those seats back there, and I heard a message about grace and mercy and unconditional love about how even though we run from God and Jesus, he never turns his back and runs away from us. In fact, we can run as far away from him as we think we can, and he's always just one decision away. He's always just one turn away. And I heard this message, and it was like the pastor was talking directly to my situation. Have you guys ever felt this way? Like the guy's just, he's just crushing it right to you, and you're like, God, you're speaking to me. I know you are. How does this guy know my story or this girl know my story? And that's how I felt that day. And so I repented. I gave my life back to Christ. And I was rejoicing exceedingly with great joy because I had found what I was looking for after so long of running. And after I rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, what I did next was I worshiped because that was my response. The final song came on and I didn't go to the courtyard to get another bagel. I stayed here and I put my hands in the air. Up to that point, I had never raised my hands in worship. I thought it was weird. I grew up in the church. I was like, weirdos do that. And I judge people when they do that. But after I came back to the Lord and, and, and realized who he was for real and his grace and his unconditional love and mercy in my life and how he pursues me relentlessly, man, it was my only response was to just throw my hands up and worship him that day. I'll never forget that moment. It was like I was reaching through the roof trying to get closer to God just to say thank you for never leaving me and never forsaking me. 
See, that's what people do when they find what their heart's been looking for. That's what people do when they find Jesus. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And it leads them to worship more freely than they've ever worshiped in their life. Have you experienced that? When's the last time you experienced that? Maybe you're like me and you're like, oh, this, yeah, I experienced that 12 years ago, but it, I haven't experienced it since. And this, this story is calling out to us to return to those moments, to return to the king, the true king of the Jews, the Messiah, Jesus. See him for who he is. Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 11 on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. See, their response is worship too. Then they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, that's as far as we're gonna get in our story today. Uh, that's what people do when they find what they've been searching for. They rejoice exceedingly and they worship freely, which is what we see happen in our story. Now, that's what the Magi do. That's their story. What's interesting is it's the exact opposite of what happens to every other character in Matthew 2, right? Verse three says that King Herod, he doesn't respond with, with, with overjoy. He doesn't respond with worship. No, it says he's disturbed and the whole town with him. We already talked about the chief priests and the, the religious experts and how they weren't overjoyed. They were apathetic and indifferent. Only the magi rejoice. Only the magi are free to worship because only the magi are searching for the right thing. Now, this is so important. This would have stunned the original Jewish audience that Matthew was writing to 2,000 years ago. Like when they read this story, they would have been appalled because the magi were foreigners. The magi were the enemies the Magi were Gentiles. How could they get it right? How could they be the hero of this story? But this is a theme that runs throughout the entire gospel, the book of Matthew. He desperately wants his audience to know that the people that find Jesus are not the ones that you would expect. They're not the most powerful. They're not the most educated. They're not the most religious. They're not the ones that have it all together. No, the people who find Jesus are the people who simply search for him more than they search for anything else. That's the only qualification in the book of Matthew. You have to look for Jesus more than you look for everything else. That's why he says in Matthew 7, 7, he quotes Jesus who says, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. God's already told us in the prophet uh, Jeremiah, you will find me if you seek me, if you look for me with all your heart. Guys, it's that simple. People that find Jesus are the people that look for him more than they look for anything else. As I was studying this story over the past couple weeks, this is the part that, that really stood out to me and I felt like God really wanted me to, to kind of lean into and share with you guys. How the Magi found Jesus from 500 miles away yet everyone else missed him, even though he was right next door. So let's talk about the people that missed Jesus. We'll start with the religious people, the, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. It seems as though uh, these experts in religion missed Jesus because they were distracted by yesterday. 
They were distracted by the past. See, they got so obsessed with the prophecies and the predictions and the moral codes and whose interpretation of this was right and who knew more about the ancient scriptures and who knew the more, uh, who, who, who won Bible trivia. Like they, like they were obsessed with the past and who knew about the past. So much so to the point where they grew indifferent and apathetic to what was happening right before them. Their obsession over religion caused them to miss Jesus completely. The past paralyzed them. While Herod, on the other hand, and all of Jerusalem with him, missed Jesus because they were distracted by tomorrow. They were distracted by the future. To Herod, it was all about power and control and, pers- and, and preservation and how to preserve that power. Who's next in line for the throne? Who's a threat to me? How do I keep control? To the people of the day and in Jerusalem, it was all about comfort and order and peace and stability. Who will bring all those things to us? How can we stay the most comfortable? How can we keep the norm? What's probably the most interesting thing I, I found in my studies this last week was despite Herod's evil track record and evil tyranny, he was actually a, a decent ruler according to the people of his day. He actually brought peace and order to Israel during his rule. Yes, he was crazy. Yes, he was a murderer. Yes, he was immoral. Yes, he was short-tempered. Yes, he did a lot of things that were horrible and atrocious. But according to the people, they approved of him because at least he helped rebuild our temple. At least, he, at least there wasn't war. At least there was peace. At least there was comfort. At least there was order. At least there was stability. This guy, Jesus, though, he's a wild card. We don't know if we could trust him. We don't know if we really need him. And so when Jesus showed up next door, they ignored him. One group distracted by the past, the other group distracted by the future. Both groups miss Jesus, who's right in front. Let's fast forward now to our lives, 2,000 years. Jesus is still right here in front of us, closer now than even six miles away. Yet sometimes we too miss him because we too get distracted by what happened yesterday or what's gonna happen tomorrow. We get depressed about the past or stressed about the future and we miss Jesus. I remember years ago, summer of 2008, uh, when I first started serving at Cornerstone, that's back when we were opening our Brentwood campus, our first campus, and I was living in Dublin and I was was driving out to our Brentwood campus to serve uh, as part of the youth group, help, help launch the youth group out there. And I loved it. I drove out there every, every Sunday to help lead the youth group while Cornerstone was interviewing to try to find a real youth pastor. <laughs> so I was like the part-time guy running the thing and, and they were looking for a youth pastor and, and they kept getting uh, candidates that were qualified and able, but nothing ever worked out. And so after a while, they looked at me and they said, well, what about Clint? Why don't we hire him for the job? And when, when they asked me that question, I wasn't like anxious. I wasn't like, yeah, it's, fu- it's about time you guys noticed me. No, I was like very hesitant. Because see, up to that point, I didn't see myself as a pastor. I just saw myself as a guy that was helping out. Because I didn't go to Bible school. I went to San Diego State. I went to business school. I was a salesman. I didn't do good in public speaking. I didn't like speaking in front of people. Like I didn't have any of the qualifications to become a pastor and what they were looking for. My resume was not in line with what they were looking for. So I never saw myself as a viable candidate. Even though God was using me, even though God was filling my heart through my ministry and and, and filling me up and using me in mighty ways, even though things were happening, I was ignoring all of that because I didn't think my past qualified me for this next step. 
until one day I stepped into my office and there was a plaque sitting on my desk. It was signed by our senior pastor, Steve Madsen and Mark Calcagno. And it said, based on the, the scriptural qualifications of 1 Timothy uh, 3 and Titus 1, we ordain you as a pastor at Cornerstone Fellowship. And that was like, a, that was like God getting my attention. He's like, Clint, the time is over for you to let your past excuse you from what I'm calling you to. And on that day, I started calling myself pastor. And see, I started to erase the, the resume that I thought disqualified me from what God was calling me to. Look, I know it's hard to overcome our past. Some of you guys have, have major things that went on in your past and it's very broken and it's led you to, to have very real scars and it's gonna take lots of time and counsel and prayer to even begin to heal those wounds. But here's the truth and I hope you hear this today. I've been praying for, for those of you that are right here. None of that disqualifies you from worshiping Jesus. None of that disqualifies you from God using you in big ways. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If you read the stories in the scripture, it's story after story about God taking someone who has a broken past and using the very brokenness of their past for his glory. That's how God works. He takes the brokenness. He takes the, the resume that we think disqualifies us and he uses it for his glory and our ministry. He takes our past pain and he launches that into our greatest calling. I mean, that's exactly what happened to me. God, you, he didn't waste my business degree. He used my business degree. He used it to, to help start this new ministry from scratch. And he's not gonna take any part of your past, even the most dark, painful parts, and he's not gonna waste them. He's gonna redeem them. But only if you say yes. Only if you turn your eyes from your past to Jesus and say, okay, God, what are we gonna do about this? And for some of you, he wants to do that so badly. 2019 is a breakout year for you where he wants to use your past and redeem it for someone else and for your ministry. And the only question is, will you let him? But the only way to do that is to, to fix our eyes on God and not the past and give it to him. And watch what he'll do. Hebrews 12, two says, fix our eyes on Jesus. Colossians three says, set your mind on things above. All right. And then there's the future. Let's talk about the future. When we focus too much on tomorrow, we can become afraid. We can become stressed, worried, scared, even threatened like King Herod. In my 35 years of life, I've never felt so much fear around me as I do today. I don't know if it's just me. I don't know if it's people I talk to, the things I look at. But when I look outside, I see a lot of fear. Like when I turn on the news, I don't have to watch it very long before I hear story after story of pain and tragedy and, and death and all these things that just make me afraid. And then I flip on talk radio and it's even worse. It's, it's politics, it's power, it's worst case scenario. It's what might happen if. So I turn my attention to social media and there's cat videos that are awesome, but then followed by all these fearful posts about what's gonna happen if, right? And it's like everywhere we look, there's fear. We go home and our kid has a rash we can't identify. We wake up, wake up in the morning and our back hurts even more and we're worried about tomorrow. We're waiting for the doctor's phone call. We're getting the, the, the automated robotic phone call from South Carolina and we're like, who is this guy trying to reach me? And it's fearful, it's afraid. 
Maybe just me. <laughs> Maybe that's why we like sports so much, because it's just an escape from the fearful reality that we live in. Until, of course, Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't step out of bounds and tears his ACL. <laughs> and then we're afraid for the 49ers' future, right? The other day, my wife and I considered, uh, considered holding our youngest son, Benjamin, back from coming to church. And we were, we were nervous, we were afraid. Because it's winter, it's flu season, germs are flying around. And we're not germaphobes. Our other two, we put in class all day long. <laughs> but our, our smallest, Benjamin, he gets febrile seizures. Which means um, if his fever spikes too fast, he goes into a seizure. And last time he had a seizure was one year ago on Christmas morning. After opening the presents, I looked at him and he went into a seizure. It lasted almost 10 minutes. Scariest 10 minutes of my life. I literally thought I was gonna lose my three-year-old son. My wife calls the paramedics. They show up within a minute, hook him up to oxygen. He comes out of it, he's fine. By the way, can, can I just say thank you to any first responder who works on Christmas morning? That meant so much that you were with me and my sick child instead of your family, and I know that's a big sacrifice, so thank you. Anyways, I'm holding my son in my arms, 10 minutes have gone by, he's coming out of it, scariest 10 minutes of my life, so fast forward to now, and it's sick season again, it's flu season again, and we're scared to put him in class. But God reminded me as I was writing this part of the message that he brought my son through that. My son's gonna be okay. The doctors say the seizures aren't gonna have any long-term effects, he'll probably grow out of them at the age of five, in fact, through that trial, he actually brought my family closer together and increased our faith. So why, one year later, am I so nervous? Am I so afraid? And here's why. It's because I've taken my eyes off Jesus and I'm focused on the fear of tomorrow. And when we do that, that's when our fear keeps us from seeing Jesus. This message was a wake-up call to me. I'm just like the people in our story. I'm not looking to Jesus to find courage and strength because I'm too focused on the fear. Church, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're called to stand up to that fear. And this is our time to stand up to it because people need light. And Jesus calls us the light of the world. People need to see the light of the world when they're afraid, when it's dark. And it's dark out there to a lot of people. And they need someone who's gonna show them that there's something greater than our fears to look at. And that's Jesus. That's what this whole series has been about. Go tell it talking about Mary, who is a pregnant teenager, probably scared to death to step outside and face public ridicule. But she did it anyways, despite the fear, because she kept her eyes on Jesus. Talking about Joseph, her fiance, that wasn't his baby. He was afraid. Well, he's gonna get publicly ridiculed too, but he's kept his eyes on Jesus and he stepped outside anyways. Talking about the shepherds who are social outcasts coming into town. Talking about the magi who were foreigners, Gentiles, the enemy, and they're the first to worship Jesus. Guys, they had every reason to be afraid, but they didn't look at the fear. They looked above the fear at Jesus and that caused them to have the faith to go and move and that caused the church to grow in the first century and to become what it is today and Jesus is looking still for people who are gonna take their eyes off the fear and put them on Jesus and say, I'm gonna step outside anyways. Even though it's dark, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, it's what comforts me. Your presence is what comforts me. Not the absence of fear. The presence of Jesus is what brings us courage and strength. Okay. The past can paralyze us. I jumped forward a little bit on my notes. The future can terrify us. But when we focus on Jesus, we find peace. When we focus on Jesus, we find peace. Everything else is simply a distraction. Imagine if in 2019, instead of writing a long list of New Year's resolutions all centered around making our lives better or filling the emptiness inside of us or attaining something or buying something or accomplishing something, that list is fine. You can make that list. But imagine if instead of focusing all our attention on that list, we focused more of our attention on just one question. How can we focus on Jesus in 2019? How can we fix our eyes on Jesus in 2019? And I was talking to my wife about this question the other night, and what we realized is the answer is gonna be different for each one of us. For some of you, fixing your eyes on Jesus in 2019 just means you need to start showing up to church every week. Like, you've been inconsistent, and the reason you're inconsistent in your faith is because you haven't been consistently here to hear the preaching of God's word, which has a way to get us above our fears and our past and keep our eyes on Jesus, and you haven't been here to worship him through song and through community, and and that's the thing you need to do in 2019 to keep your eyes lifted to Jesus. Or maybe you're just so busy and so distracted and there's all these things happening around you. Fixing your eyes on Jesus in 2019 just means you're gonna pull away for five minutes in the morning and five minutes after lunch and you're just gonna be quiet and still and listen to God. That's one of the things that works for me. That's how I get close to to Jesus. That's how I fix my eyes on Jesus. I don't know what that's gonna look like for you, but that's a good question to ask heading into the new year. I'll close with one final story. I heard a pastor this last week um, describe a painting of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel in the lion's den is an Old Testament story. Maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard it. Um, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den by his enemies and obviously the thought is the lions are gonna devour him and no more Daniel. Well, God's bigger than the lions, so he saves Daniel. It says he closes the mouth of the, of the lions and Daniel spends the night with the lions and he's, he's fine, which is awesome. It's a miracle. But about this painting, the pastor describes the painting. It's pretty powerful. I think it kind of ties a bow on this message. He describes the painting as the lions are, are kind of pacing behind Daniel and Daniel's standing in the middle of the painting and there's the lions behind them and the lions kind of like are, are looking at Daniel like, should we eat this guy for lunch? Or like, should they have that look in their eye? And then there's this little like hole in the cave or in the den. And you see like Daniel's enemies kind of peering in and you could just tell on their faces that they're satisfied with, with what they've done. Like they've thrown Daniel into the lion's den. No more, no more Daniel, no more crazy guy about God, you know? And like they're, they're kind of just ridiculing him with their eyes, mocking him, uh, waiting for these, these lions to devour him. But the coolest thing about this painting is Daniel's facial expressions or expression. He's not afraid. He's not terrified. He's not anxious. He's calm. He's at peace. 
And it's because he's not looking at the dangers around him. He's not looking at the enemies. He's not looking at the lions. He's looking up at this little crack of light, this little ray of light that's shining through the ceiling. And you could just tell by this painting that that's where Daniel's finding his strength. That's where Daniel's finding his courage. That's where Daniel's finding his peace, to stand in the midst of the lions and the enemies. And I just thought that's a beautiful way to end this message and to end 2019. Let's make this year the year where we learn how to look up to Jesus, despite everything else that's going on around us. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray for all of us that this message would sink deep into our hearts and change our lives. I pray especially for the person who's been letting their past keep them from serving you and saying yes to you and fully diving in for you and worshiping you, that today the chains would just be broken, ripped off, thrown down, and they would go full force into whatever it is you're calling them to, and they would stop using their past as an excuse. And I pray for the person that's anxious about tomorrow, and they've tried everything, pray now that you teach us how to look to you more than we look at everything else. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.